Hey everyone, just a heads up that this show talks about addiction and recovery, so take care in listening if this is a topic sensitive to you. I made a lot of decisions that certainly hurt me, yet even more so hurt the people around me. When I was able to understand how much I hurt others, that was a major milestone for me to start making the better decisions and more importantly for me doing the hard work to implement those decisions. Ed Cressy didn't always anticipate a reality where he would end up in jail for substance abuse. And through our conversation, I realized how common that is for so many people battling addiction. There's not always just one bad decision that can take you down the wrong path, but a series of decisions that changes how you perceive reality and what's normal. We first met six years ago through a nonprofit called Defy Ventures, which aims to reduce recidivism and advocate for prison reform through entrepreneurship. I was volunteering and Ed was an entrepreneur in residence. He's now an author and speaker, inspiring audiences with his personal story of overcoming drug addiction and mental health challenges, and finally realizing his childhood dream of sharing his writing with the world. My dream from a very early age was to be an author. I loved books. I would go to the libraries and carry home stacks of books almost too high to see over. The escape into imaginary worlds was, for me, much more appealing than the reality of the world around me. Today's decision is about changing your mindset and lifestyle when battling addiction. Here we're talking about substance abuse, but Ed's experiences speak far beyond that. We'll learn about a few of the factors that can lead to addictive behavior, how it impacts someone's perception of reality and decision-making, and what you can do to make a change. I'm Lindsay Strauss, and this is Figuring It Out, a show about life's toughest decisions and how we make them. When I got to my early teenage years, hard reality bumped up against me. I was a sensitive kid who would cry easily in school and on the bus rides. Of course, where I went to high school, crying, reading, and being uncoordinated, that's not going to win the junior high or the high school popularity contest, right? From a very early age, I discovered the way to achieve what I thought were my dreams. That way was drinking. When I was 14 years old and got drunk for the first time, everything changed. The bullied, uncoordinated, crying kid who I was all of a sudden transformed in my mind, transformed into a person with confidence who was finding that the other kids laughed with him, with me, rather than at me. My life from there pursued two kind of parallel tracks, Track one, college, professional careers, home ownership in the beautiful city of San Francisco, dog, relationships, family, friends. That was track one. On track two, going parallel, was the drinking. From there, quickly blossoming into heavy marijuana use, cocaine, ecstasy, And for the final 11 devastating years of my addiction, methamphetamine. Where I ended up in 2007 was destitute, living in a flophouse hotel in San Francisco. My flophouse hotel room had a little sink in the corner where I would ash my cigarettes, wash my clothes, and urinate. I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. The only things that I owned really were the clothes on my back. 
these filthy black slacks, a filthy black baseball jacket, Converse shoes held together with duct tape. The meth had rendered me in a state of psychosis, hearing disembodied voices, believing in vast FBI conspiracies, trying to pin 9-11 on me, my family, friends, former employees. Yeah, everyone, I, I, I believe these conspiracies involve just about everyone I ever met. That was October 2007. That's when I made my decision, which led to where we are today, to turn my life around, thanks to a lot of help. In October of 2007, Ed made the decision to enter long-term recovery by committing himself to a spiritual path of service. But before he got to that point, it took a really long time to understand how drugs were impacting his life and what kinds of foundations he would need to set him up for success in the future. We'll dive into the science of that in a bit. As addicted people, we often do get very good at believing our own lies. We lie to ourselves. What I would do and what's true for many of us, during the week, there would be my professional career, my athletic interests, meaning my, I would do a lot of kickboxing, trying to convince myself that because a drug addict doesn't go to work all day during the week, because a drug addict doesn't train in kickboxing, I must not be a drug addict. Those were the lies I would tell myself. This is common to addicted people because I believe those lies. I convinced myself that this facade I was putting up of the professional employee, the person engaged in athletics, this facade I was convinced was real. Therefore, it was much easier to convince others it was real also. For me, my acceptable realities changed. When I was 17 or so, my acceptable reality was a college kid who partied a lot, who drank a lot. That, that to me seemed acceptable. From there, I was the person with professional jobs who was uh, addicted to cocaine. And that, that seemed acceptable. From there, my acceptable reality was I was binge using meth every weekend. I was a person addicted to meth. From there, eventually it went on and on until I woke up one day naked on the floor of a padded cell having been put there because I'd broken into my family's home to steal for drug money. It was a repeat performance. And that was acceptable to me. Waking up on that floor in that, in that padded cell, that, that had become my new acceptable reality. Ed isn't alone in what he's describing. It turns out there's a concept called normalization of deviance, which is a term used by the American sociologist Diane Vaughn to describe a process where a clearly unsafe practice comes to be considered normal if it doesn't immediately cause a catastrophe. This phenomenon usually occurs when individuals, groups, or organizations are under pressure to meet certain expectations. When faced with this situation, when we feel like we have to meet those expectations no matter what, we're more likely to cut corners or lower the quality of our work to get it done. In the context of addiction, that can seriously impair our perception of normality. Having awareness of what's influencing our decisions is the first step, but there's of course more to it than that. I really loved Ed's approach to figuring out what he needed to do to make that change stick. Hopefully you'll never get to the point where I was at living in that Flophouse hotel or coming to on the floor of a cell, yet your challenges may be just as great as mine, if not more so. You may be facing decisions that, that are just as challenging, challenging as the ones I face, or even more challenging. The 
most important thing for me was not so much deciding to quit drugs, not so much deciding to leave behind an old life. I was helped to make the decision to find a new life. We're not quitting things. We're not leaving behind. We're, we're going to something new. We're setting new goals because when we get addicted or when we get into any number of challenging situations which compel us to make decisions, it's not always enough to, to leave behind our past. We, we got we to gotta fill that space with something new. For me, it was spirituality. That, that's a very important foundation for many of us. The spiritual can be defined as anything not of a material nature. For, for me, I threw away everything of a material nature. When I was in that Flophouse Hotel, I, I had nothing left. Therefore, I was kind of forced to adopt spiritual principles. And looking back, it was a, a beautiful, blessed thing that happened to me because it pushed me along the spiritual pathway. For all of us, there will come a point when we will certainly lose everything of a material nature, meaning all of us are only temporary beings on this earth for a finite period of time. We're all going to move from this earth in, into something else, no matter what our beliefs are. Some of us believe in an afterlife and reincarnation. Some of us believe that th this life is it. I, I certainly don't know. <laughs> no matter whom we are, there's going to come a point where we're going to look back upon our lives. Probably. Probably there'll come a point where we reflect back upon our lives or we, you know, we go into another stage of our journey. And the question I always ask myself when making decisions or implementing decisions is what do I want that life to have looked like? What do I want that life to have looked like? And you know, do with, with my own spiritual beliefs, what is gonna set me up best for the next stage on that journey? But this is the very difficult part of decision-making, isn't it? Because while I don't have my own experience with drug use, you know, I had a, a long history of uh, eating disorders. I think there's something about addiction to the addiction and addiction to the, the misery. And so when you think about trying to quit something, you know, that seems very difficult, but trying to fill that void feels like an insurmountable task of thinking, yes, I know that I, I need to change my life. I know that something needs to change, but how did you get to the point where you could say, like, I, I know what I want to start to fill this with. I know that I need to just start putting one foot in front of the other and changing something. Because it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. I personally was at the point where my choices boiled down to I was either going to get locked up, covered up, as in six feet of earth, covered up, or sobered up. Those were really my only choices. I mean, I might have been able to go into long-term homelessness. Yet, my choices boiled down to, to those we can look at the, the pathway we're on and, and look, look down the road and say, you know, where, where are our choices? Where are our lives leading us? If we take a hard look at where we're going, if we really look at the patterns of our lives and think about where they're going to get us eventually, we don't need to get to the point where I was at. We can make better decisions sooner in our lives than, than I made through, through most of my life. It's, you mentioned eating disorders. Many addictions are, are similar, whether it's addictions to social media, workaholism, destructive relationships or toxic relationships. 
usually or often those things are our solution. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that if you understand about drug addiction, drugs are not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. When we remove drugs, it makes things worse, mm. at least initially. For social media addictions, for gambling, for compulsive eating, probably it, it's very similar. That Those things are not our problem. They're, they're our attempt at a solution. And the, the difficult thing is not to quit. Quitting is easy. When I was addicted to drugs, I quit a thousand times. Right. The, the challenge is how to stay quit. And that's, as we were saying, that leads to how do we live our lives? How do we live our lives without our addictions? How do we live our best lives without those solutions that we employed effectively? It's an insidious thing because drugs, compulsive eating, social media, these addictions work, at least on the surface they work because they tamp down the negative feelings we have towards ourselves. They give our minds something to be distracted from the, the challenging aspects of our lives. As solutions, these addictions work. When we give them up, it, it makes things worse, at least initially. That makes it very challenging to get into that new life that we're talking about. I couldn't agree with Ed more about how misdirected we are to look at only substances as the problem. Think of the advertisements and language surrounding addictive substances. Alcohol is marketed as a way to ease our mind. Marijuana is the way to relax after a difficult day. Food comforts. Social media helps us feel connected. But when those things aren't kept in check, the immediate moments of relief can distract us from our real priorities and inner work. And this isn't me taking an anti-substance stance. You'll see in future episodes that we actually explore the unknown benefits of more natural substances and alternative healing. But the point is, these are all external stimuli. Any solution that's not coming from your own inner self isn't really a solution. Here's Ed again for more insights on how he built a stronger foundation for growth. Certainly spirituality, for me spirituality is always the most important part. When these inevitable storms of self-doubt, of confusion, of fear, when these storms assail us, when we've made decisions to transform our lives and when we're implementing our decisions, that, that spiritual grounding allows us to overcome the fears, the self-doubt. Community is very important, I've found. There are almost always others who have been through what we've been through or similar enough so that when we connect with these individuals, we can draw strength from one another. In addiction, of course, there's 12-step communities. There's many forms of recovery that the 12 steps just happens to be what I know the best. Certainly, when it comes to mentoring, the critical thing is to find a person, a person who have what I want. When it comes to an advisor or a mentor or a coach, she or he has to be at a place where I want to get. Yes. The, the advice we get from others can only get us to where they are at. If we find someone who's happy, who's successful, who's spiritual, who's, who's athletic, who's competitive, who's whatever we want to be. For me, I had to find someone who, who was already there and who could pass along wisdom. If, if others can't solve their own problems, how are they going to solve mine? Right, right. How are they going to solve mine? Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that's that's really important of, yeah, who are you surrounding yourself by and who are the people that you aspire to? And it's back of saying, yeah, I found those people and I followed that journey. But 
during it, you know, like, like, how did you feel? I'm sure there must've been, you know, moments where you're saying, I, I see this person that I could be, and I, I'm surrounding myself by all the right people. But were there moments throughout this process of self-doubt and backsliding at all? I was terrified. I was terrified every day. The psychosis that I mentioned did not go away when I quit using meth. It continued on and on. And even to this day, I experience what people would call a form of a lingering psychosis. I've been diagnosed with what's called schizoaffective disorder. Schizoaffective disorder is the delusions and hallucinations of schizophrenia combined with the mood disorders of bipolar. I, I think of it as the Reese's Pieces uh, or the Reese's <laughs> peanut butter cup of uh, mental illness. <laughs> the, uh, fortunately, because of, uh, of my spiritual path and because of the remarkable women and men who helped me, I, I overcame it to serve society. Yet to get back to your question, yeah, extreme moments of terror, beliefs that the FBI was coming to kick down my door. I believed uh, my family and friends were all in on this conspiracy. And Lindsay, this is years after I quit meth. This is years after I, I put the drugs away for good. There were, there were, I would have these obsessions, these body image obsessions uh, about my weight, about my fitness, about my nutrition. I had the, the, the voices, which I mentioned, the disembodied voices uh, stayed with me for years and years. And, and even to this day, I experienced these disembodied voices, yet I've learned to, to partner with them and to see them as angels or benevolent spirits. You know, it's all, it's all about reframing. I've learned to, to reframe and, and work with what most people would think of as setbacks and turn those into advantages. When you experience that now, like in that moment, it's hard to know what's going on, but you have this level of awareness from all of the work that you've done over the years to know, okay, maybe this reality that I see is not the reality that is actually there. How does that process work for you? There's a great saying that people are not troubled by circumstances, but of the view we choose to take of them. Hmm. We're not troubled by what happens. We're troubled about how we feel about it. Right. When I would hear these, these disembodied voices, people from the incarcerated population would inspire me. People who are serving long sentences because of the fundamental unfairness in our society that I've learned and, and not to get too political, Yet when I started working a lot in maximum security prisons, volunteering in maximum security prisons, I, I learned, and this is almost embarrassing to say because it, it seems so obvious, I learned that the, the reason I'm not in prison is because not of my good decision-making ability, but because of the unfair advantages society gave me due to, let's face it, my skin color. Right. And the fact I'm a privileged male, I'm, I'm a privileged white male in our society. And these are the reasons I stayed out of prison. The point is, to get back to your question, when I could start grasping onto ideas, and, and again, th that idea of my, my realizing I'm a privileged white male, and th this doesn't mean it's anyone else's experience, it's just mine personally. Yet, uh, when I could start grasping these ideas and being of service and using them to help other people, then from there, I was able to understand that what most people would call mental health conditions were something I could actually use to, uh, to benefit myself, certainly, and hopefully to benefit others. So let's say these, these mental health conditions uh, or the diagnosis uh, thereof prevent me from effectively working as an employee. 
okay, well, instead of viewing that as a dire setback, I look at that as, okay, well, I can be of better service as a volunteer, mm. going, going into prisons, doing other types of volunteer work. And from there, we get to these powerful life lessons that we just talked about, how, how my role in society is, is due to the unfair advantages I was given. Learning how to reframe his decisions through a lens of service and empathy allowed Ed to find inspiration and perspective in even more places. I would read a, a lot of books. B- books to me, the stories of, of other people are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Every story we hear gives us one little piece of, of our own puzzle. Every person I interact with gives me one more little piece of my own puzzle. It's, it's seeking, seeking inspiration from others, understanding that even when I have negative interactions, these are still opportunities to learn from. It's uh, certainly a process of, although these things are great to say, and although I I believe them, that is not enough to actually live it. Meaning I I have not, by no means have I gone around all the time living the belief that it's it's how I view circumstances rather than the, you know, as things have gotten to me and gotten to me quite a bit, I've struggled with a lot of resentments, a lot of uh, judgmental feelings, a lot of fear, a lot of self-doubt. Yet because of people like you who, who volunteer inside prisons, uh, because of people like our sisters and brothers who are incarcerated and turning their lives around and imparting powerful life lessons on me, because of the stories I've read, reading all these accounts and hearing all the stories of people who've overcome very trying circumstances, they, they inspire me. And certainly, again, the spiritual, the, the meditation practice, the exploration of spiritual ideas, the, um, the being part of faith-based communities, spiritual communities, meditation communities, getting grounded in the spiritual. That, of course, is the most important thing to me. And coming back to this this idea of community, I think what I particularly love about your story and, and one that I want to see more conversation about is when we think about changing our lives for the better, we always hear these stories of find the people whose position you want to be in and then you know, follow that, which we all should do. But also there's a lot to be learned from communities that you wouldn't have expected yourself to be with. You know, there's a lot to learn from so many different types of people. You mentioned people that are still incarcerated, but also for you, very surprisingly, you spent a lot of time working with FBI agents and people working within the, the prison system. Can you speak a little bit more about that of finding different communities in surprising places and what do you gain from from that as you continue this path of change? My becoming involved in those communities came from fear. Very early on, I was taught if I were going to be successful, meaning if I were going to contribute to the world around me, those fears I had to face. I had to grapple with my deepest, most challenging fears. There's a great quote from Joseph Campbell who says that the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. The FBI terrified me. Again, even years after I quit meth. I became a volunteer for the FBI, for their SWAT team. I'd been, a, I'd been a Krav Maga instructor. One of my Krav Maga students happened to be an FBI SWAT team agent. I made it known to him that I wanted to volunteer for the FBI. 
Uh, along the way, I'd been a volunteer, and this was another very important part of my overcoming the various obstacles. I did a lot of volunteer work. I, I got to a point where I was in that Krav Maga class with that FBI SWAT team agent as my student. The agent asked me to conduct an unarmed self-defense training for his SWAT team. The very people I was so afraid of, I stood before them as an instructor, looking at my fears, facing them, confronting those fears and putting them to use in service to others. That was a critical and is a critical way to overcoming addiction and these, uh, what most people would term the mental health challenges that, that, uh, that I've been fortunate to overcome. This conversation about community engagement made me want to understand more about which services could help people battling addiction or other high-risk behaviors. A 2020 study with incarcerated individuals led by the Marshall Project had some surprising insights about what could have impacted people's behaviors to keep them out of prison. The number one reason cited by prisoners was access to mental health resources, followed by affordable housing and college. Like Ed mentioned earlier, it wasn't just about getting drugs off the streets. People wanted help healing from the inside through mental health and educational support. There's been an ongoing conversation about police funding in America. If you ask someone who's been through the system, it's all about social support and community. In that same study, researchers asked Republicans how they thought funding should be used to help prison reform. While only 5% of unincarcerated Republicans support transferring funds from police budgets to social programs, that number goes up to 65% when you ask incarcerated Republicans. The solution isn't only about taking away access to addictive substances or products, it's about giving access to the tools and ideas that reduce the limiting beliefs that so many people have in the first place. One of the ways to do that, Ed says, is learning how to get to the bottom of some of these root issues. Recovery, as I've been taught, is not about getting clean. It's not about getting sober. Those are critical steps along our paths, but our goal is to lead our best lives. That's our goal, to, to lead our best lives. What I'm doing now and what I'm raising awareness around are the root causes of the incarceration crisis in America, the addiction crisis that we are facing and have faced for many years now. We're losing countless lives both in uh, tragic deaths and overdoses, 100,000 overdoses in uh, a recent 12-month period, the most ever on record. Our incarcerated population is at something like 2.3 million. These are terrible burdens to society because we're losing people who can contribute just as much as me, if not far, far more. And instead of them contributing, we as taxpayers are... Um, paying, I think, an average of $40,000, $35,000 a year to incarcerate someone. The, and I think it's an important point to say we, we certainly don't condone the actions of people who, like me, hurt others through our poor, poor decisions. But by no means do we condone those actions. And certainly, since we talked about law enforcement earlier, we're not giving blanket endorsement to all things law enforcement. We know that terrible tragedies have occurred and are occurring in America in the name of law enforcement. We don't condone any of that. Yet, we try to understand that behind bars and behind badges beat the hearts of human beings. Right. That behind the walls of our jails and prisons, we can find women and men who truly deserve to be walking the streets free. And behind the wheels of our squad cars, we can find people who truly deserve to be entrusted with protecting our streets. These are the ideas I've been taught. What I'm doing today is 
putting forth these ideas, learning from others, helping people as so many people have helped me. I've been very fortunate to have published uh, a series of articles in the Washington Post, a series of articles strongly advocates for recovery and, and criminal justice reform. I wrote a book. The book is my journey through addiction and into recovery, through mental health challenges, into criminal justice reform and my work with the FBI. We've so far donated 1,200 uh, something copies to 125 correctional facilities. It's been approved at state level. The book's been approved in uh, Massachusetts, New York, California, Vermont, Maine, and Oregon. We're working on getting into the federal system and the other states. And of course, the, the, the number one thing and what makes it all possible and worthwhile is the, the spiritual life. I struggle with balancing the message between, okay, I, I was uh, a hardcore, uh, I, I was a person who was hardcore addicted to drugs, and now my life has turned out quite well. Yet that doesn't mean someone should go out. I don't think it means someone should go out, use drugs, believing that, you know, they can get to where I'm at. Mm. I think the point is also that my, my life, although it's, uh, it's filled with blessings today, it came at far too great a cost. Right. What people would call the mental health challenges that I've struggled with and even today do struggle with, the damage I did to myself and to others, that cost is too high. It's true. But I think what you said before really rings true of behind bars and behind badges, there's a beating heart, you know, we're just human and we make these mistakes and the messages that you're sharing around, what are the small steps that you can make when you're not making great decisions? What are the small things that you can do to get yourself back on the right track? And it's just making the choices that are moving you in the direction of where you want to be. Absolutely. Making the choices, implementing them, adopting some spiritual principles, facing and overcoming fears. I think if we do those things, then we're pretty much uh, on, on a good path. That was Ed Cressy. His book is called My Addiction and Recovery and is available for order on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. If you like the messages that we're sharing here, please leave a five-star review so even more people can find figuring it out. Join us next week for a conversation on your most requested topic, da-da-da-da-da, love. We're talking with writer and photographer Natasha Lund and what she learned about love after her conversations with the prolific minds of people like Esther Perel, Alain de Botton, Roxane Gay, and more. See you there.